In suburbs and towns north of Denver, people are scared. alone from Coloradans who are basically being tormented, complaining of lack of sleep due to noise and vibrations, foul, toxic air. Accusing the state of allowing an industry to risk and inflict damage on families and neighborhoods. Residents driven by uncertainty. Whether my granddaughter's school is at risk, whether my well water is at risk. Risk, the risk that comes with oil and gas development in communities. Now, we make choices related to risk all the time. To drive, to eat fried food, to use a cell phone. But risks that are forced on us, like an oil well being drilled in your neighborhood, people are usually less willing to tolerate that kind of risk. We people that are living in close proximity to these kind of operations, we're the guinea pigs. Over the past 10 years, U.S. oil production has doubled. Natural gas production has jumped by nearly 40%. So in areas like North Texas, on Colorado's Front Range, in western Pennsylvania, communities are becoming industrialized, dotted with wells and laced with pipelines. People who live in these areas fear all sorts of health impacts, complaining about things like trouble breathing, headaches and nausea, and about stressors like bright lights and noise. At the same time, there is a growing body of research on low birth weights, childhood cancers, and asthma in proximity to oil and gas wells. But these studies haven't shown that development actually caused these health problems. It takes time to really understand what the risks are. And, you know, we all want things to be certain, but, you know, real life is less certain and a little more messy. Faced with this uncertainty, some states have acted. Well, after years of researching what could go wrong with this type of underground drilling, state officials finally concluded that the risks outweigh the benefits. New York banned fracking in 2014 despite proven oil and gas reserves. The state health commissioner felt there were still too many questions and it would be reckless to allow hydraulic fracturing for oil and gas in New York. Maryland and Vermont have also restricted it, as have some cities. But in Colorado, as in many other states, fracking is legal and widespread. Now, fracking is just one step in the process of drilling for oil and gas, but without it, very little new development would happen at all. So, is having oil and gas development nearby bad for your health? In this story, called Living with Uncertainty, we're going to dig into what is known and what is unknown about these dangers and why those unknowns still exist as more and more wells are drilled. We're going to meet different people with different perspectives who are all gathering data or studying it. They're looking for answers and living with unknowns. I'm Lee Patterson. Colorado's public health department has a map on its website of the state. Parts of it are color-coded in different shades of green. The green shows zip codes where oil and gas-related health complaints have come in. The darker the green, the more complaints. There's a lot of green just north of Denver, and if you zoom in on the darkest patch, it's really small. And then if you keep zooming in on the one zip code where a lot of the health complaints have come from, you'd be in a town called Erie. It's an upper-middle-class suburb north of Denver, lots of young families moving in. The town's population has tripled over the past 15 years. Erie is where Christian Van Wittenberg lives. Christian. Nice to meet you, Lee Patterson. He's the head of a local anti-oil and gas group called the Erie Protectors. We walk straight through his house, out the back door, and jump the fence. Oh, 
All right. To get a closer look at what's out back. We've got a, a wonderful view looking west. A clear view of the Rocky Mountains rising up from the plains. It's why I bought this property and... Uh, and straight ahead. We are looking at the, the Pratt Well site operated by Crestone Peak Resources. About 850 feet behind his house. Last summer, when the company was drilling five new wells and working on a sixth, complaints about noises and odors started rolling in to state regulators. And Christian Van Wittenberg wanted answers. He wanted to know what was going on behind the 40-foot sound walls that surrounded the site. You know, curiosity got the better of me. I just got on Amazon and, and plopped down my credit card and, and bought the drone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll just go straight up. Wow, look at that thing go. So what are we looking at exactly, do you know? What's in our current viewport here are the six wellheads. From the ground, you can't see much. In the distance, the site looks small, a sort of vague jumble of equipment. But from the little handheld screen, we can see what the drone is seeing as it glides over the wells, the separators, big boxy equipment evenly spaced. So when there's a weird noise or a weird smell in the area, Van Wittenberg grabs his drone to see what it can see. So what on earth was that noise? That is the question a whole lot of people are asking in Loch Bui and North In November, for example, a few days before Thanksgiving, there was a loud boom near a town 20 miles east called Loch Bui. A few days later, Van Wittenberg flew over the site, and in that video, there's no audio, just the music he's added here. You can see a wide open storage tank with no top on it. Turns out the tank had overpressurized and the top had blown right off. Many of his drone videos like this one are posted on the Erie Protector's Facebook page. Some of them have thousands of views. Van Wittenberg's hope is... To educate people, to show them what's actually going on behind these walls. Because you're not allowed to just walk up and, and open the gate. Correct. It's private property, and it's not mine. This data collection, it's also personal. When I looked at the footage from that first flight, it was absolutely stunning and terrifying. Stunning and terrifying, he said, that these facilities are near his home. Because of that proximity, Christian Van Wittenberg is motivated by health concerns. He's a worried dad, father of two. Last summer, he says there were diesel-like, gaseous smells coming from the nearby site, so he made his daughter stay inside all summer. And he was not the only one who was concerned. A lot of people have filed formal complaints along the same lines. Last year, around 180 oil and gas complaints came into Colorado's health department from Erie. Statewide, oil and gas regulators received over 1,300 complaints. So an industrial site popping up near a neighborhood is a new thing for a lot of people. Companies do file all sorts of information with the state and with the town, like the timeline for drilling, the number of wells, that kind of stuff, but there can still be unknowns. Strange things can happen. Like the one story that a woman from Erie told me, that at a certain point in late summer or fall, the diesel smell coming from the nearby well pads turned into something like diesel mixed with green apple, and then later on something more perfumey. State regulators confirmed to her in a meeting and recently to me that yes, the operator was adding stuff to its drilling mud to cover up the smell. For these communities, the potential risks can feel serious and really real. Take Christian Van Wittenberg. He thinks that the weird smells, the stuff in the air, that's all giving him respiratory problems. And there's no way that any doctor can point definitively 
to the six wells behind my home and show that they are the cause of my increased issues with like colds and breathing. Do you think there's a connection? <sighs> Anecdotally, yes. Like I am a person who is living close to these oil and gas operations and I am a person who has seen increased respiratory issues in the last year and the only thing that's changed is the location of an oil and gas operation behind my home. Showing that oil and gas development directly cause some sort of health problem, like Christiane Van Wittenberg's chest colds, is nearly impossible. Partially because there are so many factors, there are so many different reasons why people get sick. But there are a lot of researchers around the country doing the slow, detailed work of formal information gathering related to oil and gas development and public health. In this scene, we'll meet two of them. Why don't you just tell okay. me your name? Uh, Lisa McKenzie. I'm an assistant research professor here at the Colorado School of Public Health. Lisa McKenzie crunches data on the public health side of things. She's part of a larger research effort to get more science into energy policy. The group is called Air, Water, Gas. As for Frank Flocka... My name is Frank Flocka. I work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He's a scientist who gathers data on air emissions. Mackenzie and Flocka tell kind of parallel stories about their research, about what it says and about what it does not say, and about what some of the barriers are to nailing down specifics. We'll start with Frank Flocka's work on air emissions. Colorado is a very pretty place to fly over <laughs> and fly in. In 2014, in an aircraft called a C-130, Frank Flocka spent a month collecting air emissions data. A few years later, his team published a report. I'm going to hand this to you and have yeah. you flip through a couple different pages. So table three, page 14, mm -hmm. illustrated here in tables with headings like NOx and VOC, Flocka found that oil and gas operations contribute more to ozone production than anything else on the northern front range, between 30 and 40 percent on high ozone days. Emissions from power plants, cars, factories all contribute to ground level ozone too, known as smog. And high ozone levels can make respiratory problems like asthma worse. Now, this oil and gas factor on the northern front range, it was not surprising to Frank Flocka. Let's go to page 44 and then we'll... Then what we'll was surprising is what his team found taking air samples on the ground in Weld County. And we're looking at the location of 10 or the 10 highest benzene canister samples. Benzene. It's a chemical compound, a component of coal and petroleum. Long-term exposure to it can cause cancer. Very large concentrations were found downwind of produced well water and fracking fluid disposal facilities. Produced water and fracking fluid disposal facilities. The stuff that comes up after fracking and then later on when the well is producing. These are the sites where that stuff is disposed of. And some of those particular sites, the benzene concentration was in excess of 100 parts per billion. And what does that mean? That is a very high number. Way more benzene than people should be breathing in over long periods of time. So those are kind of alarming. That, you know, I would not want to live very close to this, this facility. But this all comes with a caveat. Researchers are full of caveats. The cautionary tale here is that those are snapshots. So th those samples were taken once. You know, they drove by, they noticed an odor, so they took a sample. This is a cautionary tale because 
we're exposed to emissions often, even if you don't live near oil and gas, from cars, house paint, secondhand smoke. It's the duration of exposure and the intensity of it that really matters. So that's a limitation to Frank Flocka's measurements, and it gets at a larger problem. We'll come back to it, but first, public health researcher Lisa McKenzie explains what she's found with her own limitations and caveats. In describing one of her studies, published in 2014, children with a congenital heart defect were more likely to be born to a mother that was living in the densest areas of oil and gas wells. That word choice is important there, isn't it? Yes, yes, it's an important word choice. And in describing another study that came out last year, once again, I'm going to say this carefully, is that children with a very specific type of leukemia were more likely to live in the densest areas of oil and gas development than not. What Lisa McKenzie did not find, and this is where the word choice thing comes into play, is that proximity to oil and gas development caused health problems in kids. Right, this kind of study can, cannot show that it, the proximity caused the birth defects. I mean, that real hard causal link, and that's because we cannot do that kind of experiment, right? We cannot take people, put them in a laboratory where we control everything else about them, and expose them to things and see what happens to them. Mackenzie says that what they could do is study a large group of pregnant women who live near oil and gas, follow them around during their whole pregnancy, ask them to wear air monitors, give urine samples, and then do the same thing with a group of pregnant women living nowhere near oil and gas development. Lisa McKenzie does want to do those bigger studies, just as Frank Flocka wants to go back and take more air samples where he found high benzene levels and how he wants to do more airplane missions. They both know that they need more data. But the bottom line is that these studies are not only complicated, they're expensive. For us, it's funding is the primary problem. In health research, funding is always very competitive. Budgets that are set, priorities that are set. have to compete with everyone else out there doing health research on all other topics. Uh, As a air quality researcher, I would like to see more done because I know where those problems are, but I'm sure that every researcher in every field will tell you the same thing. Frank Flocka's 2014 airplane mission cost around $3 million. He says around $2 million of that came from the state, the rest from the National Science Foundation. Since 2015, the state's health department has spent around $2.2 million on a program for people to report oil and gas-related health concerns, on a study to monitor emissions near oil and gas infrastructure, and on a mobile lab that can drive right into the problem areas. But research dollars are stretched across a lot of priorities, like looking into the health effects of marijuana, for example. And states generally don't have a lot of funding available for research, period. There are some nonprofits working on these issues, and there is some federal funding coming from the Environmental Protection Agency and the National Institutes for Health and a few others. But there isn't a sustained source of funding channeling dollars towards this problem, nothing set aside. All of that, coupled with the fact that communities growing near expanding oil and gas development is a relatively new issue, means that researchers, regulators, residents have to basically just live with a lot of unknowns. You know, we all want things to be certain, but, you know, real life is less certain and a little more messy. And I think that it it takes time to really understand what the risks are, and we necessarily don't always have the patience for that. 
yeah, there, there's a lot of people that say that um, you know nothing should be done or started uh, before uh, whoever is planning this activity can prove that it will be harmless for you know for people to. Uh, that would be ideal, no question about it. Um, is that compatible with our fundamental needs for energy and transportation? Yeah, you know that's another question. idea that an activity or action shouldn't be allowed until the risks are known and fully mitigated is something called the precautionary principle. Basically, better safe than sorry, which sums up the way many people feel towards oil and gas development, especially the ones who live closest to it, like Christiane van Wittenberg. This really comes up to that, that very fundamental difference of opinion that uh, we as residents demand they prove it safe before they proceed in extracting those minerals. And the operators are moving forward and they're, they're extracting those minerals until we prove that it's not safe. On both sides of the issue, in states all across the country from New York to Colorado, it really becomes a question of just how much evidence does there need to be before any action is taken to either facilitate or to limit drilling for oil and gas. What we do know is that many energy-producing states are definitely not putting the brakes on development while scientists take the time to do more research. In Colorado, over the past 10 years, natural gas output has jumped 35 percent. Crude oil production has nearly quadrupled. And so public health officials here are working with data, gathering information, just like researchers and curious community members. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, that's CDPHE, is working on a new analysis that will estimate health risks to people living at various distances from an oil and gas operation. Dr. Larry Wolk is the head of CDPHE. Now, he doesn't decide if fracking is allowed or not. That's generally up to the governor or the legislature. But he does have to monitor and make decisions about health risks as the industry grows. Do you believe there are health impacts of oil and gas development? Uh, I mean, it's a broad question. Um, I think oil and gas development has the potential to create health impacts, um, just like any other industrialized process. But last February, a week after Lisa McKenzie's study on childhood leukemia came out, Colorado's health department published its own analysis of existing data, looking at the question, are air emissions from oil and gas harmful for people living nearby? It concluded that the risk of harmful health effects is low and that more evidence would be needed to prove potential harm. This report was just submitted for peer review recently. That's when other professionals look at a piece of research, evaluating it for validity and for quality. But when the study was originally released to the public last year, it hadn't been peer reviewed yet. And does CDPHE still stand by the conclusion that essentially the, the risks are low to people living nearby? Yeah, I think it's probably more correct to say that there's no evidence 
of significant health impacts. And there's some caveats around that. Um, caveats, there's that word you know, again. And so nobody would say that these fossil fuels are safe because they do have the potential to increase someone's risk for cancer based on your exposure. Exposure is really kind of the key term. Nobody would advocate for you to stand over a well and breathe in fumes or to pour yourself a nice glass of liquid petroleum and drink it. That's just ludicrous, right? With so many data gaps, how can CDPHE really stand by that conclusion that the risk is low? Because we do general and overall surveillance. Of health problems like cancers, low birth weight babies, birth defects, Wolk argues that if there were issues related to oil and gas in counties with a lot of wells... You would expect to see, through our general surveillance, higher rates of these health impacts that people are concerned about. And we don't see that. So why so many seemingly contradictory messages between the public health department and the researchers we heard from earlier, for example? Well, it depends on what's being measured, where, for how long, and then how exactly that information's analyzed. And if Dr. Wolk's answers seem hard to pin down, that there is potential for health impacts and that nobody would say fossil fuels are totally safe, but also that there's no evidence of significant health impacts, that's because in order to be totally clear on impacts, he'd want this. I want data that conclusively, every which way you cut it, shows that there's a higher incidence or prevalence or risk. There's very few things in our industrialized society that are pure one way or the other. And so we always try to kind of help people weigh the risk uh, and the benefit. Weighing the risks and benefits. That's really what communities and lawmakers are doing, rather than making decisions entirely based on data, because we just don't have all that data yet. Take Colorado's Front Range. It's the place where we've probably seen more conflict over oil and gas development than anywhere else in the country uh, that I've seen. And so I'll be interested Daniel Ramey is a senior research associate with a think tank called Resources for the Future. He was in Denver recently giving a talk on his new book called The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and the Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. So on the benefits side... So the most obvious benefits are the economic benefits, both for communities that have hosted oil and gas development and also for energy consumers, which is to say all of us. Lower energy prices mean lower utility bills, lower gas prices, plus jobs, severance taxes, all that stuff. And then there are the potential climate benefits from switching from coal-fired electricity to natural gas-fired electricity and the public health benefits as well. These benefits are often regional, national, global, but the risks are typically much more local. The risks to uh, water quality, the risks to human health, the risks associated with climate change, and the risks associated with earthquakes. The sheer scale of the industry means that some people, at least some people, will be negatively affected. So 
how do regulators and lawmakers and citizens weigh those benefits and the risks when making decisions about development? What, like, what is that calculation like? It's a very complicated calculation, and it takes into account the economic potential. It takes into account the environmental and health risk. It takes into account the local political environment. And it takes into account the history and character of a region. Which would include the idea of inertia, Ramey said. That means, basically, if a place has a history of oil and gas development and it's important to the economy, then that place is more likely to stick with it and welcome more of it. Because it's their bread and butter. In areas where oil and gas development has less of a historical footing or is a smaller part of the local economy, local leaders, understandably, look at their communities and ask the question, how much good would this industry do for my community? And how much bad could it do? Now, local leaders do have some say on these issues, but oil and gas resources underground can be owned by regular people, by towns, by companies. And at the state level, those owners have the right to develop their resources and make money. So on the front range, it's a mixed bag. On one hand, there is a long history of oil and gas development, but over the past decade or so, the character and the economy of the region has changed so much. Lots of new businesses and new people moving to the area. I think the best we can hope for is, first of all, getting as much research done as we can, realistically. And second of all, asking decision makers as well as advocates to wrestle with the complexity. How you wrestle with the complexity and how you weigh those risks and benefits depends on a lot of factors. Your politics, your beliefs, your work, your health, where you live. Like Christian Van Wittenberg, who lives in Erie, near that pad with six wells. Have you filed complaints? I have, yes. How um, many? Well, I, I filed probably a half dozen. Enough people complained about that site that over the summer, the state health department sent its mobile lab over to monitor the air. The conclusion? That the measured levels of those VOCs, those volatile organic compounds, were well below federal and state standards. They didn't find levels exceeding those recommendations. It's just that I really care about my children, and I don't want to increase their risk of cancer for any reason. Remember, the public health department surveillance didn't show higher rates of health problems in this county. But Christian Van Wittenberg is really close to the risk side of the equation here. And he's thinking about health impacts way down the road. And, and really what I think it boils down to is that we people that are living in close proximity to these um, kind of operations, we're the guinea pigs. Will we be able to backtrack a statistically significant increase in cancers and respiratory issues to the people that were living in Erie, Colorado in 2016 and 2017. And that's what I fear. I'm Lee Patterson. This podcast, Living with Uncertainty, was produced with support from Air, Water, Gas, a National Science Foundation-funded network of researchers based at the University of Colorado Boulder, working to get more science into oil and gas policy. This program was edited by Elisa Barba. Our music was composed by Poddington Bear. For more podcasts and stories about energy, go to insideenergy.org.